Part Seven of A Child of the Jago by Arthur Morrison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Sections thirty four to thirty seven. Section thirty four. The lion and unicorn had been fresh gilt since she was there before, but the white headed old jailer in the dock was much the same. And the big sword. What did they have a big sword for, stuck up there over the red cushions? And what was the use of a sword six foot long? But perhaps it wasn't six foot after all. It looked longer than it was, and no doubt it was only for show, and probably a dummy with no blade. There was a well-dressed black man sitting down below among the lawyers. What did he want? Why did they let him in? A nice thing to be made a show of, for niggers. And Josh Perrott loosened his neckcloth with an indignant tug of the forefinger, and went off into another train of thought. He had a throbbing, wavering headache, the outcome of thinking so hard about so many things. They were small things, and had nothing to do with his own business, but there were so many of them, and they all had to be got through at such a pace, and one thing led to another. Ever since they had taken him, he had been oppressed by this plague of galloping thought, with few intervals of rest, when he could consider immediate concerns. But of these he made little trouble. The thing was done. Very well, then, he would take his gruel like a man. He had done many a worse thing, he said, that had been thought less of. The evidence was a nuisance. What was the good of it all? Over and over and over again, at the inquest, at the police court, and now here, repeated, laboriously taken down, and repeated again. And now it was worse than ever, for the judge insisted on making a note of everything, and wrote it down slowly a word at a time. The witnesses were like barrel organs, producing the same old tune mechanically, without changing a note. There was a policeman who was in Meakin Street at twelve-thirty on the morning of the fourth of the month, when he heard cries of murder, and proceeded to the coffee-shop. There was the other policeman, who also proceeded there, and recognised the prisoner, whom he knew, at the first-floor window. And then there was the sergeant, who had found him in the cellar, and the doctor who had made an examination, and the knife, and the boots, and all of it. It was murder, murder, murder still. Why? Wasn't it plain enough? He felt some interest in what was coming, in the sentence, and the black cap, and so on, never having seen a murder trial before. But all this repetition oppressed him vaguely amid the innumerable things he had to think of, one thing leading to another. Hannah and Dicky were there, sitting together behind the glass partition that rose at the side of the dock. Hannah's face was down in her hands, and Dicky's face was thin and white, and he sat with his neck stretched, his lips apart, his head aside to catch the smallest word. His eyes, too, were red with strained, unwinking attention. Josh felt vaguely that they might keep a bolder face, as he did himself. His sprained foot was still far from well, but he stood up, putting his weight on the other. He might have been allowed to sit if he had asked, but that would look like weakness. There was another judge, this time, an older one, with spectacles. He had come solemnly in after lunch, with a bunch of flowers in his hand, and Josh thought he made an odd figure in his long red gown. Why did he sit at the end of the bench, instead of in the middle, under the long sword? Perhaps the old gentleman, who sat there for a little while, and then went away, was the Lord Mayor. That would account for it. There was another room behind the bedroom at Weech's, which he had never thought about. Perhaps the money was there, after all. 
Could they have missed any hiding place in the shop parlour? No, there was the round table, with the four chairs about it, and the little sideboard, besides the texts on the wall, and two china figures on the mantelpiece. That was all. There was a copper in the wash-house, but there was nothing in it. The garret was a very good place to keep things in, but there was a strong smell of stale pickles. He could smell it now. He had smelt it ever since. The judge stopped a witness to speak of a draught from a window. Josh Perrott watched the shutting of the window. They did it with a cord. He had not noticed the draught himself. But pigeons were flying outside the panes and resting on the chimney stacks. Pud Palmer tried to keep pigeons in Jago Row, but one morning the trap was found empty. A poulterer gave fourpence each for them. They were ticketed at eighteen pence a pair in the shop, and that was fivepence profit apiece for the poulterer. Tenpence a pair profit on eleven pairs was nearly ten shillings. Ten shillings, all but tenpence. They wouldn't have given any more in Club Row. A man had a four-legged linnet in Club Row, but there was a show in Bethnal Green Road with a two-headed sheep. It was outside there that Ginger Stag was pinched for lob-crawling, and so on, and so on, till his head buzzed again. His counsel was saying something. How long had he been talking? What was the good of it? He had told him that he had no defence. The lawyer was enlarging on the dead man's iniquities, talking of provocation and the heat of passion and the like. He was aiming desperately at a recommendation to mercy. That was mere foolery. But presently the judge began to sum up. They were coming to something at last. But it was merely the thrice-told evidence once more. The judge blinked at his notes and went at it again. The policeman with his whistle, and the other with his lantern, and the doctor, and the sergeant, and the rest. It was shorter this time, though. Josh Perrott turned and looked at the clock behind him, with the faces over it, peering from the gallery. But when he turned to face the judge again, he had forgotten the time, and crowded trivialities were racing through the narrow gates of his brain once more. There was a cry for silence, and then a fresh voice spoke. "'Gentlemen of the jury, have you agreed upon your verdict?' "'We have.' The foreman was an agitated, colourless man, and he spoke in a low tone. "'Do you find the prisoner of the bar guilty or not guilty?' "'Guilty.' Yes, that was right. This was the real business. His head was clear and ready now. "'And is that the verdict of you all?' "'Yes.' Was that Hannah sobbing? A pale parson in his black gown came walking along by the bench, and stood like a tall ghost at the judge's side, his eyes raised and his hands clasped. The judge took a black thing from the seat beside him, and arranged it on his head. It was a sort of soft mortarboard, Josh noted curiously, with a large silk tassel hanging over one side, giving the judge, with his wig and his spectacles and his red gown, a horribly jaunty look. No brain could be clearer than Josh Perrott's now. "'Prisoner at the bar, have you anything to say why sentence of death should not be passed on you according to law?' "'No, sir. I done it. Only he was a worse man than me.' The clerk of arraign sank into his place, and the judge spoke. "'Joshua Perrott, you have been convicted on evidence that can leave no doubt whatever of your guilt in the mind of any rational person.' of the horrible crime of wilful murder. The circumstances of your awful offence there is no need to recapitulate, but they were of the most brutal and shocking character. You deliberately, 
and with preparation broke into the house of the man whose death you have shortly to answer for in a higher court than this. Whether you broke in with the design of robbery as well as of revenge by murder, I know not, nor is it my duty to consider. But you were there, with every circumstance of callous ferocity, sent the wretched man to that last account, which you must shortly render for yourself. Of the ill-spent life of that miserable man, your victim, it is not for me to speak, nor for you to think. And I do most earnestly beseech you to use the short time yet remaining to you on this earth in true repentance, and in making your peace with the Almighty God. It is my duty to pronounce sentence of that judgment, which not I, but the law of this country, imposes for the crime which you have committed. The sentence of this court is, that you be taken to the place whence you came, and thence to a place of execution, and that you may be there hanged by the neck till you be dead. And may the Lord have mercy on your soul. Amen. It was from the tall black figure. Well, well, that was over. The jailer touched his arm. Right. But first he took a quick glance through the glass partition. Hannah was falling over, or something, a mere rusty swaying bundle, and Dicky was holding her up with both arms. Dicky's face was damp and grey, and twitching lines were in his cheeks. Josh took a step toward the partition, but they hurried him away. Section 35 All this hard thinking would be over in half an hour or so. What was to come now didn't matter, no more than a mere punch in the eye. The worst was over on Saturday, and he had got through that all right. Hannah was very bad, and so was Dicky. Em cried in a bewildered sort of way, because the others did. Little Josh, conceiving that his father was somehow causing all the tears, kicked and swore at him. He tried to get Hannah to smile at this, but it was no go, and they had to carry her out at last. Dicky was well plucked, though, bad as he was. He felt him shake and choke when he kissed him, but he walked out straight and steady with the two children. Well, it was over. He hoped they would get up a break in the jago for Hannah and the youngsters. His own break had never come off. They owed him one. The last break he was at was at Mother Gap's, before the dove laners fell through the floor. It must have cost Mother Gap a deal of money to put in the new floor. But then she must have made a lot in her time, what with one thing and another. There was the fencing, and the houses she had bought in Honey Lane, and the two fourpenny doss houses in Hoxton that they said were hers, and, well, nobody could say what else. Some said she came of the gypsies that used to live at the Mount years ago. The Mount was a pretty thick place now, but not so thick as the Jago. The Jagos were thick as glue and wide as Broad Street. Bob the Bender fell in Broad Street, toy-getting, and got a stretch and a half. Yes, yes, of course, they always tolled a bell, but it was rather confusing, with things to think about. Ah, they had come at last. Come, there was nothing more to think about now, nothing but to take it game. Hold tight. Jago, hold tight. No, thank you, sir. Nothing to say. Special. Only much obliged to ye, thank ye kindly, for the grub and, and being kind and what not. Thanks all of ye, come to that. Especially you, sir. It was the tall black figure again. What, this was the chap, was it? Seedy looking, 
sort of undertaker's man to look at. All right, straps. Not cords to tie, then. Waist, wrists, elbows, more straps dangling below. Do them presently. This was how they did it, then. This way? I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. A very big gate, this, all iron, painted white, round to the right, not very far, they told him. It was dark in the passage, but the door led into the yard, where it was light and open, and sparrows were twittering. Another door, in a shed. This was the place, all white, everywhere, framed too, not black after all. Up the steps, hold tight, not much longer, stand there, very well. Man that is born of a woman hath but a short time to live, and is full of misery. He cometh up, and is cut down like a flower. He fleeth as it were a shadow, and never continueth in one stay, in the midst of life. Section 36 It was but a little crowd that stood at the old bailey corner while the bell tolled to watch for the black flag. This was not a popular murder. Josh Perrett was not a man who had been bred to better things. He did not snivel and rant in the dock. He had not butchered his wife, nor his child, nor anybody with a claim on his gratitude or affection, so that nobody sympathised with him, nor got up a petition for pardon, nor wrote tearful letters to the newspapers, and the crowd that watched for the black flag was a small one, and half of it came from the Jago. While it was watching, and while the bell was tolling, a knot of people stood at the parrot's front doorway in old Jago Street. Father Sturt went across as soon as the sleepers of the night had been seen away from the shelter, and spoke to Kiddo Cook, who stood at the stairfoot to drive off intruders. "'They say she's been sitting up all night, Father,' Kiddo reported in a hushed voice, "'and Paul's just looked in at the window from Walsh's, and says she can see him all kneeling round a chair with that little clock of theirs on it. It's... it's more than half an hour yet.' I shall come here myself presently, and relieve you. Can you wait? You mustn't neglect trade, you know. I'll wait all day, father, if you like. Nobody shan't disturb em. When Father Sturt returned from his errand, Have you heard anything? he asked. No, father, answered Kiddo Cook. They hate moved. There were two faint notes from a distant steeple, and then the bell of St. Leonard's beat out the inexorable hour. Section 37 Kiddo Cook prospered. The store was a present fact, and the awning was not far off. Indeed, he was vigilantly in search of a second-hand one, not too much worn. But with all his affluence, he was not often drunk. Nothing could be better than his pitch, right out in the high street, in the busiest part, and hard by the London and County Branch Bank. They called it Kiddo's Bank in the Jago, and made jokes about alleged deposits of his. If you bought a penneth of greens from Kiddo, said facetious Jagos, he didn't condescend to take the money himself. He gave you a slip of paper, and you paid at the bank. And Kiddo had indulged in a stroke of magnificence that no other Jago would have thought of. He had taken two rooms in the new county council dwellings. The secret was that Father Sturt had agreed to marry Kiddo Cook and Pigeony Pole. 
There would be plenty for both to do, what with the stall and a regular round with the barrow. The wedding day came when Hannah Perrott had been one week a widow. For a few days Father Sturt had left her alone, and had guarded her privacy. Then, seeing that she gave no sign, he went with what quiet comfort he might, and bespoke her attention to her concerns. He invented some charring work in his rooms for her. She did it very badly, and if he left her long alone, she would be found on the floor, with her face in a chair-seat, crying weakly. But the work was something for her to do and to think about, and by dint of bustling it and magnifying its importance, Father Sturt brought her to some degree of mindfulness and calm. Dickie walked that morning in a sort of numb, embittered fury. What should he do now? His devil most. Spare nobody and stop at nothing. Old Beveridge was right that morning years ago. The Jago had got him, and it held him fast. Now he went doubly sealed of the outcasts, a Jago with a hanged father. Father Sturt talked of work, but who would give him work? And why do it, in any case? What came of it before? No, he was a Jago and the world's enemy. Father Sturt was the only good man in it. As for the rest, he would spoil them when he could. There was something for tomorrow night, if only he could get calmed down enough by then. A builder's yard in Kingsland with an office in a loft, and money in a common desk. Tommy Rann had found it, and they must do it together, if only he could get this odd numbness off him and have his head clear. So much crying, perhaps, and so much trying not to, till his head was like to burst. Deep-eyed and pale, he dragged around into Edge Lane, and so into New Jago Street. Jerry Gullen's canary was harnessed to the barrow, and Jerry himself was piling the barrow with rags and bottles. Dickie stood and looked. He thought he would rub canary's head, but then he changed his mind, and did not move. Jerry Gullen glanced at him furtively once or twice, and then said, "'Good old moke for where, ain't he?' "'Yes,' Dicky answered moodily, his talk half random. "'He'll pig out soon now.' "'Him? Not him. Why, I bet he'll live longer than you will. He ain't going to die.' "'I think he'd like to,' said Dicky, and slouched off. "'Yes, Canary would be better off dead. So would others. It would be a comfortable thing for himself, if he could die quietly then and there. But it would never do for mother and the children to be left helpless.' How good of them all to go off easily together and wake in some pleasant place, say a place like Father Sturt's sitting-room, and perhaps find... But there, what foolishness! What was this unendurable stupor that clung about him like a net? He knew everything clearly enough, but it was all in an atmosphere of dull heedlessness. There would be some relief in doing something violent, in smashing something to little pieces with a hammer. He came to the ruined houses. There was a tumult of yells, and a crowd of thirty or forty lads went streaming across the open waste, waving sticks. "'Come on! Come on, Jago! Here they are!' A fight! And what more welcome! And Dove Lane, too! Dove Lane, that had taken to bawling the taunt, "'Jago cutthroats!' Since he was in the thick of the raid. "'Come on, Jago! Jago!' Here they are. Past the board school and through Honey Lane they went, and into Dove Lane territory. A small crowd of Dove Laners broke and fled. Straight ahead the Jagos went, 
till they were suddenly taken in flank at a turning by a full Dove Lane mob. The Jagos were broken by the rush, but they fought stoutly, and the street was filled with a surge of combat. Jago! Jago, hold tight! Thin, wasted, and shaken, Dicky fought like a tiger. He had no stick till he floored a Dove Laner and took his from him, but then he bludgeoned a pace, callous to every blow, till he fought through the thick and burst out at the edge of the fray. He pulled his cap tight and swung back, almost knocking over, but disregarding a leather-aproned, furtive hunchback, who turned and came at his heels. "'Jago! Jago, hold tight!' yelled Dicky Perrot. "'Come on! Father search, boys!' He was down, just a punch under the arm from behind. As he rolled over, face under, he caught a single glimpse of the hunchback running. But what was this? All this? A shout went up. Stabbed! Chived! They've chived Dicky Perrot! The fight melted. Somebody turned Dicky on his back, and he moaned, and lay gasping. He lifted his dabbled hands, and looked at them, wondering. They tried to lift him, but the blood poured so fast that they put him down. Somebody had gone for a surgeon. "'Take me home! Take me home!' said Dicky faintly, with an odd gurgle in his voice. "'Not hospital!' The surgeon came running, with policemen at his heels. He ripped away the clothes from about the wound, and shook his head. It was the lung. Water was brought, and cloths, and an old door. They put Dicky on the door, and carried him toward the surgery, and two lads who stayed by him were sent to bring his friends. The bride and bridegroom, meeting the news on the way home, set off at a run, and Father Sturt followed. "'Good God, Dicky!' cried Pole tearing her way to the shutter as it stopped at the surgery door. What's this? Dicky's eye fell on the flowered bonnet that graced the wedding, and his lip lifted with a trace of a smile. La, pitch! He was laid out in the surgery. A crowd stood about the door while Father Sturt went in. The vicar lifted his eyebrows questioningly, and the surgeon shook his head. It was a matter of minutes. Father Sturt bent over and took Dicky's hand. "'My poor Dickie,' he said. "'Who did this?' "'Dunno, Fa.' "'The lie, the staunch Jago lie. "'Thou shalt not nark.' "'Fetch mother and the kids, Fa.' "'Yes, my boy.' "'Tell Miss Beveridge there's another way out. "'Better.' "'The End End of Part 7 End of A Child of the Jago by Arthur Morrison Recording by Algie Pug